You're listening to Everyday Saints podcast from the Melbourne Anglican. I'm your host, Janan Taylor. Our aim is to feature the stories of people from different backgrounds in Melbourne and beyond. These stories, they might make us laugh, they might make us cry, but our hope is that hearing a diverse range of stories will bring us closer together and better equip us to care for one another. So, without further ado, we hope you enjoy. Matthew Clark and Annabella Rossini Clark are two ordinary Christians who have acted on their yearning to make the world a better place. From aiding midwives in Ghana to orphans in South Africa, their projects have long sought to lift people up and never lower them down. Troubled by what they learned through some of their work, they started an anti-slavery ministry. Matt and Bella's Freedom Keys project is cracking open and probing the worsening problem of human trafficking in an attempt to find effective ways of stamping it out. The ministry was also part of the impetus for a book they penned on biblical mercy. They spoke with me about human trafficking and the role that biblical mercy could play in helping to arrest it. I hope that like me, their story helps shed light for you on how people might live in a way that allows one another and the land around us to flourish. But human trafficking is by no means an easy issue to confront and be warned that we do reference the sexual abuse of minors. If you need to speak with someone, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14. Welcome, Bella and Matthew. I want to start with how you got to where you are today and who influenced you. Bella, perhaps you'd like to start? Right, well, I'm just turned 63 and I feel like... Um, I feel like what has happened in my past has really just thrust me now in this season of life to be um, become quite an quite an activist. Um, I've always had a, a heart for the marginalised, for the for the people that often other people reject. Even as a small child, I was always wanting to bring the guy Strick. His name was. I used to live at the dump in the little country <laughs> town. I was always saying, "Can't he just come back and live at our place?" You know, um, my family. Uh, my dad was a. Um, a minister so I did grow up in a family that had a very open home so that that care and love for others for all people was modeled to me but it's something that I just have carried very very um, probably quietly in my heart nearly all my life but this season um, of working in this space alongside Matt has helped me um, give voice to that little voice that has always been there and our work started um probably about in you know in earnest probably 10 years ago I started with a sustainable social enterprise coffee cart working with a project in in Ghana Africa and then yeah met Matt and and now we've gone into this um a slightly different direction with that charity work okay and I understand there's a little teardrop shaped caravan that's also played a significant role here yeah, her name is Little Pearl. She's a treasure. She really is. And it was a little caravan that I had that I used to tour with. A friend of mine who lived in community with me, a, a nurse, a, a midwife, and she said, look, there's this project in Ghana that we need to raise some funds for and some advocacy work. Do you think you can come on board and help? And at that stage, um, I was still thinking about what I was going to do for this next season. And I thought, well, maybe I could turn my little teardrop into a coffee cart because I did have a cafe many years before in a little town in Dungog 
called Crazy Chairs Cafe. People still talk about it. And I thought, oh, I could just maybe do coffee and conversations, get out there, raise some funds, raise some awareness. So I started turning teardrops, teardrop caravan, into joy. And that was deliberately designed to raise funds to provide a scholarship to train midwives in a village in in Ghana. And now, of course, this tiny little caravan has been able to provide enough income to help us do the work that we do in research without Matt having to go back into the paid workforce and um, also actually provide these little bits of income to help in these various projects. And there's the the Child Poverty Project, I believe, as well. Perhaps, Matt, you can outline that for us. Uh, yeah, so Bella's been raising funds uh, that have gone to various international development projects. Um, I've got a bit of a background in international development. I, I lived in South Africa doing peacemaking work and over there we have some contact with some people who set up an orphanage mm. during the height of the AIDS uh, epidemic. There was very young babies who were being abandoned or their parents were dying. And so these friends of mine created a safe place for a couple of, I think it was 16 uh, babies and they're now in mid to late teens and so part of the funding that we've been raising in the last few years has gone towards vocational training for those people to help them transition the the orphanage is now closed down it wasn't ever established to be a long-term orphanage but just for that cohort of children and uh, we've been helping to um, support the work of moving people back into regular life I worked with Compassion for seven years doing data analysis and it was through that work with Compassion and seeing that children in poverty who are in the care of Compassion projects were often very vulnerable to being exploited in ways that would be counted as, as modern slavery or human trafficking. So that's that's where my interest was created in trying to do something about the worsening problem of human trafficking. Mm-hmm. And your your research that you've done with the Freedom Keys Project unearthed quite a few gaps there. Can mm. you outline that for us? Yep. So when I left Compassion to start our own project, we wanted to be independent of other funding sources and of large organisations that already had clear strategies in the human trafficking space so that we could ask tricky questions because the trajectory of the last 20 years is that although thousands of organizations including some amazing christian groups and millions hundreds of millions of dollars have been spent trying to end human trafficking it hasn't really worked the trajectory is that the problem continues and is likely getting worse according to the latest statistics and so we started asking why that is what's not working and let's not just repeat the strategies that we've used for 20 years that haven't brought about systemic reduction in the problem and think about some innovative ideas that might be more effective in the next 20 years. Mm. And we tried to see what are the blinkers, what are the assumptions that are making people put so much effort into things that aren't all that effective. So a lot of work is being done in rescuing victims and in prosecuting the traffickers. They're two key strategies that have been um, important in the last 20 years. More recently, with things like the Australian legislation in the last few years, uh, a third strategy has been to add economic pressure through supply chain auditing so that the exploitation of people isn't supported by the economic demand for cheap products. So there's some, there's some economic work being done there that we're still waiting to see how effective that, that might be. What we noticed was that 
virtually no one in the space spends much time thinking about the trafficker. And this is the, the biggest gap that we, we saw. People think a lot about the victims and about the economic system around it. To the extent that they think about the trafficker themselves, it's only about how can we arrest them, prosecute them and get them uh, incarcerated. There's very little being done to think about how do we prevent people from becoming traffickers? And there's nothing at all that we can find anywhere in the world that's looking at the rehabilitation of people who have been convicted of human trafficking offences. But we don't really know much about the trafficker. We don't know statistics about their demographics. We know virtually nothing about why they become a trafficker. What's the internal psychology of a trafficker? And what are the external pressures, perhaps the socioeconomic background of the trafficker that pushes into pushes them into that route as a what must seem to them at the time a reasonable uh, life. Uh, and so how could we possibly change those behaviours or undermine it or, or bring those behaviours to an end if we don't first understand um, the, that motivational ecology? And so that's been the, the, the direction of our research in the last six years and trying to generate some innovative ideas about how the anti-trafficking movement can better understand and engage with traffickers in order to bring about behavioural change. And if I just add one other thing there, we also extend the problem of human trafficking um, in terms of its causation to the people who generate the demand for uh, slavery or slave-produced goods, the people who go overseas on so-called sex tourist holidays uh, in order to engage in illicit sexual behaviour um, in tourist destinations, the people who are demanding uh, cheap goods that then require someone to be exploited in order to produce those goods. Um, they're not the trafficker, but they're the people who sustain the system by generating the demand. And so we've been thinking, what can we do to change that side of things as well? What's going on, in, on inside the mind of someone who buys underage sex or who looks at sexually abusive material online and how can we challenge and change the psychology of those people who are who are perpetrating um, the the evil of of modern slavery, but at a distance, without actually being traffickers? In terms of identifying those motivators and the behaviour patterns of, for example, the people who are who are buying child sex, I mean, how how do you go about doing that? How, how's that progressing? Yeah, that's one of the big challenges in the whole structure of modern trafficking, that the traffickers themselves are invisible and the people who are buying illicit sex don't really advertise themselves. So it is very hard to get access to those people. One way that the Australian government does it is by tracking overseas funds transfers. So mm. Austrac looks at patterns of payments um, and uses artificial intelligence techniques to match those patterns to things that, that might be abusive sexual engagements online. So that's part of the, the strategy. We try to raise awareness and do advocacy work through community groups and churches so that we all start realising that people in our midst are addicted to pornography and perhaps abusing people within their own family and perhaps paying for quite abusive sexual encounters with people, even young, very young children overseas. So just raising awareness and supporting the groups that do provide psychological care, mm. including 
uh, there are some online groups for paedophiles, for instance, who don't want to abuse children. They recognise, like an Alcoholics Anonymous group, will join together to try to help protect each other from acting out on those inner desires. But it is a very tricky space. Mm. Now, part of this idea about rehabilitation of of traffickers aligns with those ideas of mercy that you have then come up with. But you've been talking and thinking about the idea of mercy for a very long time. I guess what you learnt along the way you then... I suppose, saw how that might fit into addressing human trafficking. Was that just a coincidence? Or how did that actually come about for you? Yeah, the two developed in parallel. And part of the seed of the the idea was a visit to Fiji. You want to Mm. talk about meeting a friend of Bella's, who a couple who do prison chaplaincy work in Fiji. Yeah, long-term friends, Peter and Jill Schultz, started Operation Foundation in Fiji about 17 years ago now. And they realised through their work there that if the men were visited by their fathers while they were in prison and worked alongside these inmates just before, maybe the last six months of their sentence, that the, what's the word? The recidivism I can never rate. say. <laughs> Re-offence. Re-offence was really, really reduced. And those that didn't get visited that continued to be, I guess, shamed and ostracised, then they were more likely to come back to prison. So they noticed this and so they've worked with the idea that mercy needs to be in action there. Like if they can work with the village where the offender came from and see some kind of reconciliation there, even getting some family members, even best if it was the father, to come and visit. And in a sense work through the brokenness that had happened to cause the the inmate to to do the offence of whatever they've done, then that restoration of relationship is really important. That's mercy in action. That's really something going beyond just incarcerating. And it has just been profoundly successful. And Operation Foundation continues and grows in the in the prison work there in Suva. So that was probably a huge inspiration to say, well, mercy, mercy can actually change lives. And that's really what it's about. Hmm. That made us then start thinking more about, well, what do we actually mean by mercy and how would it apply in contexts like human trafficking? And I think we have some very simplified versions of what mercy means in in our common use of of the word. Um, But if we take the biblical concept more seriously, we need to think about how it would apply in even horrendous evil. So if mercy is to be more than just giving some money to poor people or, or someone who's begging on the street and forgiving some people who are friends who've hurt us or family members. If if mercy is something deeper and more substantial and transformative than that, then we want to try to push the idea and say, well, how would biblical mercy apply to a human trafficker, to someone in domestic violence, to, to a rapist? And if the concept of mercy can't be applied in those awful cases, then maybe we've got too shallow an idea of what mercy is, or perhaps too shallow an idea of what justice is, or too shallow an idea of how mercy and justice work together. 
So in your book, you write that mercy shows three levels of God's love for the world, uh, including offering disruptive opportunities for personal transformation and reconciliation for all people. But can you explain how that might play out across other contexts? Um, I'm thinking especially of the aftermath of the Indigenous Voice to Parliament. Yeah, it's been a very trying time for Australians as we as we grapple with that issue. I think a lot of people recognise that there are continuing injustices with the relationship between uh, First Nations people and uh, more recent um, immigrants, um, and and yet how do we how do we move forward? The referendum gave one vision of how we might move forward, which the majority of Australians have now rejected. Um, doesn't mean that everyone's rejected the need to care for Indigenous people, uh, but we need uh, another plan. How how do we build uh, relationships that are more whole and true and just and caring? And so, yeah, I see mercy, as you said, as working these three levels. And the first is that that you see an immediate need and have a compassionate response to it. It might be uh, someone who's um, in a physical need, they're, they're sick in some way, or it might be that there's an emotional need, it might be that they're broken in, in various ways. And, and we see in Australia that there are significantly broken relationships between Indigenous people and non-Indigenous people, and also between um, non-Indigenous people like us and and the land that Indigenous people have cared for and understood for, for so many thousands of years. So there's brokenness there. You see the need and you think we have to somehow do something that's that that alleviates that that need that's that's the the primary impetus of compassion that leads to actions of mercy um but beyond that you want to think about how mercy might transform the bigger picture how it might address the systemic problems uh, and that's certainly clear in human trafficking that having uh, showing the sort of mercy of rescuing a victim addresses a particular need of a particular person, but does nothing that transforms the whole problem. And that person who you've rescued is very quickly replaced by somebody else. So you need to do something that is more transformative. And the same is true with uh, Indigenous um, issues in in Australia. Uh, So what would mercy look like? And, And it's no good just doing small acts of kindness and repeating political mistakes that haven't worked in the past. There needs to be something innovative and and surprising. Mercy is nearly always surprising. And that's where I think mercy goes beyond just kindness. Um, we can't have a society without kindness. We need to care for each other in, in all sorts of, of small and large ways. But where mercy steps in is where things have already been broken. And you need to do something that disrupts things out of the repeating pattern so it pre- creates an opportunity for more drastic change so it needs to be something surprising and extravagant um and what could that be in in australia's in situation the if it's not um giving a voice to parliament well how will we listen mm. what what is the surprising extravagant thing that we can do that will enable truth telling uh and this, I think, fits in with your third, the third level that you mentioned. God's intention for the whole world is that everything in heaven and on earth will be reconciled in Christ. And we're called into that mission of God to, to, um, uh, to, to bring what happens in heaven on earth, to be co-creators of uh, a new kingdom. And it's a strange king that, doesn't, that, that leads that kingdom that 
in a way that's different than every other kingdom that earth has, has ever seen. Um, and so how can acts of mercy, how surprising acts generated from compassion that address the needs around us, how can they help create this, this, um, this space where everyone can flourish? Because that, I think, is God's, God's ultimate in, intention, to use acts of mercy to create something where we don't feel in competition with each other, mm. but working together, we create a society, which I think is a better modern word than kingdom, we create a society in which everyone can flourish, Indigenous and non-Indigenous, men and women, uh, victims and traffickers, people in prison, people who put them into prison, uh, so that everyone can flourish. That's that's surely our our, our goal as followers of Jesus. It seems to me, certainly on that last point about, say, God's attempt, attempt to reconcile everything and everyone, um, that has some profound applications as well when you, when you think about the natural world. Somebody asked me about how mercy might apply to creation care and if mercy is a compassionate response to need, then when we look around us and see the, the land itself um, in deep brokenness, then, yeah, there, there could well be a, a way that we can think of um, mercy as being applied to creation itself uh, rather than just applying mercy to, to our actions towards other people. Um, it could be a rich area, I think, of possibility. We were down at we were at a surrender conference down in Melbourne in March, and um, it was spoken there about you know land rights, the rights of the land. I think it might have been Ray Minikin speaking, and he just brought a, a wonderful, fresh approach about you know the land has the right to flourish. Oh, that's a beautiful way of looking at that whole subject. Well, how do we live in a way that gives our land? the ability to flourish. And you go back through scripture, I mean, again, growing up with the whole idea of um, different patterns in scripture about resting the land, you know, do we rest our land every every seven years? I mean, there's some beautiful um, images there that can become quite religious, but, but they can actually be a beautiful way of caring for the land. Do we give ourselves a rest day? You know, do we... Um, do we do we live in a way that can listen to the patterns in creation that are actually there? God has actually put them there, and we can. Um, and I think we can sit back and learn so much from from creation. And our, definitely, our Aboriginal people have got more handle on that than we ever have, and so much to teach us. So learning learning to rest learning to rest our land, learning to value it, learning to, to value each other is all part of stepping back into that gentle, a, a much more gentle, probably slower rhythm. So, and I think that's, I think that's you know, God's mercies are new every morning. We can see those, those beautiful patterns if we take time to, to sit and look at that. Um, yeah, do we just, we just, do we just plough that field every year and put chemicals in it so we can keep growing things in it, that's that's perpetrating violence against the land, you know. So, yes, I think the principles that we're talking about here in human trafficking can be overlaid in so many different areas for sure. To come back to the human trafficking project, what's the, the one idea most 
people get wrong, apart from, as you were saying, not thinking about rehabilitation and not thinking about the traffickers and the motivations there. What do you find, though, that that really people disagree with about some of your concepts of mercy and how that aligns with human trafficking? Yeah, there's a variety of common misunderstandings about the nature of human trafficking. Part of it is not understanding how broad the label is. There are lots of things that come under the label modern trafficking. I always get modern slavery and human (laughs) trafficking. The the two labels get used by many people interchangeably. Um, There are something like 50 million slaves in the world, according to the best estimates that we've got, which are heavily disputed because how do you count something which is so hidden? But nevertheless, it's the best estimate we've got. And that includes something like 15 million people who are in forced marriage. It includes a whole bunch of people who are in uh, children who are conscripted into into armies, particularly in northern Africa, and at a very young age are dehumanised and forced to kill other people, even as as young as 12, 13. Uh, It includes people who are in some sort of forced uh, uh, sex work. Um, That doesn't include all prostitution, but there are many people who have been either tricked or uh, forced into selling their bodies for sex. It includes people who are in some sort of labour exploitation, that they've been, again, tricked or coerced or or forced into a situation where they're they're not paid for their work, where they're in unsafe work conditions. Um, So so human trafficking is is a broad range of, of options. And it's difficult then to say that there's one solution to all of it. Um, We find that many people restrict their thinking to the idea of sex trafficking and they restrict their thinking to what they've seen in the movies like Taken where and the more recent one, Sound of Freedom, where someone is kidnapped and sold into slavery. Those kind of things very rarely happen. People don't get kidnapped and sold into slavery very often. It happens, but it's a small part of that much larger problem where people are tricked and coerced in ways that their freedom is taken away um, so that they no longer have choice what they do with their lives. So um, there's also, along with that, an idea that the profit motive is the key driver for mm. human trafficking, and that's some, sometimes the case, that people make a fair bit of money from it. And linked to that, people think that it's something that's driven by large organised crime syndicates. Both of those don't have very much evidence, the evidence shows that um, a lot of human trafficking is done by by individuals um, opportunistically rather than in a large organised um, group and that many of the people involved in human trafficking don't make any more money than their peers. Uh, so it's not as lucrative as people think and it's not as organised as people think. So there are a couple of the misconceptions. Mm-hmm. I think it's easy on the... On the other side, that the people who are trying to bring a change to, to the human trafficking system need to find funding. And so then what type of message do you give to help you raise funding so that you can do your work? That leads to other biases and, and misconceptions because it's easier to raise funds if you spread a picture and a story about a young girl who's been forced into a life of sex. That draws on the heartstrings of compassion and uh, it's easy to give money to the rescue 
of victims. It's much harder to find funding to work amongst traffickers, to try to prevent people from becoming traffickers or to engage with people who are in the middle of some type of abuse or exploitation that counts as trafficking or to work with them in prisons. They're they're harder things to get support and funding for. And that, I guess, is where... um... the concept or the idea and the the driver of mercy, like for us, comes in. So when we go into those spaces and try to talk to agencies that to whether they can um, possibly add something to their project or indeed to get possibly to get funding, we're self-funded at the moment, but to take some of these ideas into the field, we will need to get some funding. So we now need to step into that extravagant place of mercy with people to say, okay, you know, um, where where does the compassion drive us to? And it needs to drive us to the source of the problem and the source of the problem of the people who perpetrate. So, um, and for us, you know, we look at the as the story of um, of Zacchaeus it was quite si- simple, simple and profound that Jesus stepped towards the person who was perpetrating violence against um, his own people. In fact, that's who he was exploiting when he was collecting taxes for the Romans, but he was also collecting too much and pocketing it, and that was hurting his own people. So so Jesus shows us that um, to disrupt that, you've got to go towards the person and actually, um, and I think, you know, by going and saying, you know, I'll go and have dinner at your place, he was actually giving Zacchaeus' humanity back in some ways. Um, and challenging the religious people of the day to say, look, you know, um, you've got to go towards these people. If they're going to change, you have to, <laughs> you know, you don't marginalise them. You know, you might have to protect some people from violent people for sure. But if you go towards and find out why they're doing what they're doing, I can imagine what Jesus would have been talking to Zacchaeus about. Like, Zacchaeus, why do you do this? You know, mm. these, are your, these are your brothers and your sisters. And, and actually ask questions you know, and find out what was Zacchaeus' need. And that was obviously addressed because Zacchaeus actually went, well, hang on, I, I'll um, I'll pay back, you know, as many people as I can and I will stop doing that. And Jesus then reinstates him as one of, you know, children of Abraham. So Jesus is quite simply profound in the way um, he approaches these these people one by one approaches them as people and I guess that was um, quite a turning point for us to try and see perpetrators as people who perpetrate they're people first what is going what's the brokenness in their life do we ever get a chance to ask those people why do you do what you do what's your need you know if you had a choice to do something else would you you know like that's to me that's that one by one approach um, to changing lives. And so when Jesus changed the life of um, Zacchaeus, all the people down the future of Zacchaeus's life are no longer victims. So he redeemed and, and changed Zacchaeus, but also all the people that he would have been exploiting in the future. It's simple. It's so simple, but it's so profound. But to step into that space there needs to be this a love of mercy if you want to go back to the Micah passage to do justly, to live in a way where you can all flourish, to be lovers of mercy and to do that with humility because we are all broken. 
Mm. Now, we all can perpetrate things to, with each other, maybe at a lesser extent. So that that humility, that that verse is really profoundly important, and they those three things need to work together. So to step into this space, that's the challenge of mercy. Rescue, rescue is a heart of compassion, and that needs to be done. We're not definitely not saying don't do that, but we're thinking, okay, how about we step even further into the problem? But let's let's step into that this extravagant, scandalous mercy that takes into consideration what's going on for the people who perpetrate. Because some of the conversations we had we had in Indonesia when we we're at the conference there um, was some of these people that um, that. Uh, that end up perpetrating violence against against their own people as well have been victims and actually are just as they're all in desperate situations this is desperateness um this is raw desperateness for a lot of people sometimes it might be you know what do you talk to people that are really um evil uh, no hardened deliberate yeah uh, yeah there, there's there's people at that end there's there sure are but for a lot of this, this muckiness of exploitation and coercion of each other happens with the, with the simple people on the ground. And, the, and they're hurting desperate people that are surviving. But unfortunately, they're hurting other people in the process. And mercy comes in, if you press into that space, has a chance to say, hey, we are all made in God's image. We all need to live in a way that we can all flourish. Does that have to be at the expense of each other? And that's the challenge. That's our challenge. That's where we pin, put our our sort of our arrowhead in, I guess. But to do that, we really did have to look at mercy and so we wrote a book on it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in terms of, as you say there, Bella, forcing people who want to address the issue and the problem to think about their own brokenness, what sort of wins, for want of a better word, <laughs> have you had with the project? Uh, well, we sit and have these conversations and at, 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 at high levels in some of these organisations and one-on-one they go, absolutely, look, I think this is a key, absolutely, because really if we don't address where the problem starts, how do we ever think it's going to end? And they basically say, but you won't get funding for it. It's as simple as that. You know, these are people who are, our conversations move them nearly to tears. If I wasn't working for the organisation I'm working for, I'd be right there with you. But but we can't go down that road. Our, our, our funding does not allow for that level of mercy. Um, and so we don't have, we haven't had a huge amount of wins, except when we, we spoke at the anti-trafficking conference in Indonesia recently, and some of these little NGO organisations on the ground have the most beautiful hearts, and they're actually, they understand this stuff. They really do, and they're actually, they're actually doing a lot of this stuff, and there is a group um, that we're having some Zoom meetings with called... Unbounded. Unbound, um, unbounded um, love. I think. Unbounded. And they have an education program. So we can see where this is moving um, into more the preventative space. So education. So they've got this program that they take into schools about building resilience, I guess, and and bringing um, value to human life and seeing that they're all valuable, how they treat each other, how they treat themselves. Um, so they become more resilient so they won't be as easily coerced into 
being trafficked or abused. And and then when we talk about this, they agree. It's the same, really, you need to be asking the same question, building the same ideas into prevention of people becoming perpetrators. What is the thing that makes someone vulnerable to becoming a victim is very similar to the thing that makes someone vulnerable to become becoming a perpetrator because for a lot of them it's survival. They're hungry. They've got families mm. to feed. Um, mm. So you need to plant the seeds somewhere early on. But you, you've got to challenge. You've got to challenge the heart of mercy. So in terms of finding some partners to work with, we're still working in that area, and I'm confident that we can um, we can change the world. Yes, we don't work on the front line, so we haven't got wonderful success stories of a person that we met who was a trafficker who's now been. Um, redirected in, into a more positive role. We work in the in the the back the back end of uh, trying to think about how systemic change can be brought through the organisations that are working on the front line, uh, supporting them, helping them to rethink their theories of change. So the wins for us are when we find organisations that already are working. Uh, in in some field area where there's uh, occurrences of, of human trafficking, organisations working in that space who build into their programs aspects that are at the preventative end, preventing people or reducing people's vulnerability to becoming a trafficker and people who are working at the rehabilitation end, trying to take people who have been convicted of trafficking offences and helping them to rethink their, their life so that when they come out of prison, they don't simply go back and reoffend. So, yeah, wins for us aren't directly case studies of people who've been changed, but um, systemic changes to the way human traffic strategies work, yeah. uh, anti-trafficking strategies work. Yes, and we would love to think that if some of these agencies were to take on some of these ideas, that in 10 years' time hmm. there would be agencies going, oh, yeah, we can give you lots and lots of, because we've actually changed the way we, we are rolling out our compassion and our, and our strategies. Because the, the, the human trafficking space is changing. Like, you know, the rescue of that, you know, the, the Cry of Freedom movie shows... Sound of Freedom. Sound of Freedom, sorry. Um, it shows, you know, what, what a lot of these agencies were doing 10 years ago and a lot of these agencies actually don't work like that now you know they're they're seeing that there are maybe other ways um, of working in this space so so my hope is that that organizations will listen will listen and go right you know what you're right nothing's changed a lot in these 20 years in terms of the volume of people being um, coerced and and exploited maybe it's time to add this add this dimension, this work up the river to what we do. What communities might best express that level of compassion you mentioned? Uh, in your research, were there any communities that stood out for you? Everyone is capable of showing mercy. It ought to be a particularly strong skill for um people within the, the Christian church because mercy is so fundamental to the to the gospel and we're called as followers of Jesus to be merciful because our God is merciful um, and we see that exemplified in Jesus. So our Christian communities, our, our church communities ought to be places of mercy and 
they sometimes are and they sometimes aren't. Uh, but certainly we've seen we've seen contexts in which the the local gathered group of Christians shows extreme surprising help to the needs that they see around them. It often happens at the grassroots level. Yeah. It's not the kind of thing that you can legislate about, um, either at a government level or at a church ecclesiastical level. Um, you can, you know, perhaps at a from a top-down approach, say, "Well, we should collect some money, and we'll give them give the money to these group of needy people." But but the actual delivery of radical kindness and surprising mercy happens through people's individual lives and and in small groups when when you see someone in your neighbourhood. Uh, one of the groups that I think has done that really well is uh, Labri, the organisation which helps to care for. Uh, disabled people by getting some so-called non-disabled people living uh, in the same house as the so-called Lavash, La not Labrie. Lash, yes, Lash. goodness me, getting yeah. it wrong. Lash, thank you. <laughs> um, and the thought there that people who who are living together in those houses recognise that all of them are broken. And it's not just that there are some people who've got it all together who are rescuing the ones who don't have it together. Um, but everyone's broken and we all need each other and we all need to learn from each other and that the people who don't look so disabled really just hide their disability better than the ones for whom it's more obvious what the disability is. Uh, so there's a great sense of, of mercy and uh, compassion in action in a context like that that starts with this understanding that I'm not coming into rescue, that um, I'm standing in solidarity with someone mm. in need because I know that I'm also in need. And I think I think Peter Schultz's Operation Foundation in Fiji definitely. And Peter has his own prison story, so he's um, and he's quite open with that. He was in he he went to prison for a couple of years himself, and he understood that you know he needed to go there. There were some things that he had that he had to um, confess, and. But in that process, he understood that there were lots of people there that were just broken and, and, and some, of, some of the things that had happened to him was born out of some brokenness of, of, of understanding of what expectations that he should have as a, as a young Christian businessman. And, um, and I think he realised that, you know, we're, we can all get lured into, into, into some poor decisions um, and so through that experience, like that was something quite, he had, was quite humbled in that experience and he came out and, from prison and, and he ended up um, starting Operation Foundation in Fiji, which is a lovely, amazing story if you ever get to read about Operation Foundation where God led him there. But it's really come out, I think its power is came out of his own brokenness, his own need for mercy, his own need to say, I really made some poor decisions and, I, and, and I've had to pay my dues but it, but the story didn't have to end there. So um, so it really is born out of a lot of hope. Um, so I've seen that. I've, I've seen how one person's life has turned around lots of people's lives. Um, there's a, a story, um, I've got loads of story from Coffee Cart Conversations, but a, a fellow up in the Hunter Valley um, back in his younger days, he'd been in prison, he'd come out and he... Um, he went to the Wayside Chapel. He's really anti-Christian, this guy, and still is in some ways, well, anti-religion um, more than anti-Christian. But 
But he has to say that the care that he got when he landed on the door of Wayside Chapel, someone sat with him, taught him some leather skills. He's now an amazing leather maker in the Hunter, Hunter Valley. And just the compassion that over the years, years and years and years out of Wayside Chapel, I just think is is profound as well. Hmm. Yeah. And the people that we work with in South Africa is another amazing yeah. oh, example. Couple, so yeah. we mentioned before about these friends of mine, along with some, some other people who created an orphanage uh, for babies through the AIDS crisis in, um, in the 1990s in uh, South Africa. And 16 or so of those children were, were cared for by a group. Who, they, they just saw this, this need. What else was going to happen to these babies? Who was going to take care of them? And so they said, well, we'll have to. We, we, we'll just do it. Um, and for you know for for fifteen sixteen years they they've been caring for those those babies, watching them, giving them schooling, giving them medical care, giving them as much love and affection as as possible. Um, in a, just a very small organisation without huge funding, uh, going at great personal sacrifice for the people involved, mm-hmm. to the point now that um, the institution the the orphanage has been closed down. But there's this continuing um, compassion for the for the children who some of whom are still very broken, and there's one boy in particular that uh, Bella and I um, are continuing to to support in prayer and funding through these these friends in South Africa. He's having an amazingly difficult time. He's he's homeless most of the time. He doesn't have very good social skills. He can't hold down a job, and he still carries the brokenness of being abandoned as a child. Um, but nevertheless. These these friends just haven't given up. They haven't given up. Um, regardless how many times he fails and yeah. lets people down and steals from people and and moves on so that he doesn't get into trouble, the, these people just continue to love him. Mm. To um, you know, they're, they're a couple of my heroes. They, they just they don't give up, mm. and that's what mercy looks like. So mercy, we've said, is is driven by compassion. But it nevertheless takes a lot of intelligence as well. You've got to think through how do we show mercy? What's in this particular need? We want to do something, but what do we do? Mm. It takes practice. It takes courage. It, it takes thought. It takes collaboration. It takes a whole bunch of mistakes so that over time we, we learn how to do it better. And one of the crucial things about mercy is that it's not outcomes focused. We give mercy freely without knowing what its final effect will be. And sometimes we never see the effect, mm. the final effect anyway. Um, we do it because we are followers of Jesus who depicted a God who is full of mercy and calls us into a life of mercy. So we do it because mercy is something we love. We become lovers of mercy. And it doesn't matter if sometimes uh, it doesn't work and we offer forgiveness or we offer some other form of of help, we try to release someone from slavery or, or some other sort of bondage, addiction, abuse, and our best efforts are rejected or taken advantage of. Mm. Um, all sorts of things can happen beyond our control once you you scatter the seeds of, of mercy. Um, you hope that it will meet the need. You hope that it will be transformative. You hope it will contribute to the reconciliation of all things, but we don't know. We- mm. 
you've got a lot on your place already, but <laughs> what's next? Ooh. We've been thinking a lot about shame in the last year and the role that shame plays in people in prison, the role that shame plays for people who are victims of human trafficking who are, are rescued and then are no longer welcome back in their community because because they're broken. <laughs> uh, and how to deal with that shame and also the shame that human traffickers probably carry because they've hurt other people and carry within themselves a dehumanising effect of what they've done to others. How can people decide to become better people if they can't first deal with the shame, bring to the surface the shame of who they have been in the past. So that's, um, mm, that's a big... an important strand for what we're working towards. Well, what happens when you're not working? How do you build in rest with all that you do? Well, <laughs> Bella, and I, Bella and I are highly mobile. <laughs> so we don't own a house. We don't rent a house. We've got a 35-foot uh, motor sailor that we spend a fair bit of time on so uh, we can live on the boat. We've got a Toyota high ace, a 1999 high ace that's been turned into a camper van, so we can sleep in that. We've got Bella's mobile coffee cart. I've got an office which is in a caravan, and we've got a Vespa. And so we can ride around on the, on the Vespa scooter or we can take our office and coffee cart wherever. So that mobile lifestyle is nourishing for us at the moment we're actually in brisbane we we drove up in our camper van a couple of days ago doing a series of um, discussions some just around people's dinner table and others at church settings uh, on these exact topics that we've been talking about and uh end of today we'll we'll head back down to sydney so we enjoy the smelling the flowers along the way as well yeah, but what, what we do build into our world is it's we've got some lovely friends and we are very good at saying, hey, could we come for dinner, you know? <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> they all know we've got to have somewhere to do our washing. So we love um, embedding ourselves around people's table and having conversation. That's very nourishing for us. We're pretty good at taking time out um, and, and then we just love, meal, you know, meals with people. That's mm. really nourishing for us. That sounds wonderful. Matthew and Annabella, thank you very much again um, and for taking the time to chat with me. Shannon, uh, it's been great talking. Yeah, it's been lovely. Uh, good set of questions. You've been listening to Everyday Saints. This episode has been hosted and edited by me, Janan Taylor, with help from Elspeth Kernabone, Michelle Harris and Maya Pilbara. Graphics by Ivan Smith. If you have a suggestion for our podcasts, please email editor at melbourneanglican.org.au.